Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close. I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask the questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. Hey everybody, Michael Close here in the Great White North. Thanks for uh, joining me. Uh, my guest today on Conversations with Close, uh, an old pal. I've known at least, oh, probably close to 30 years, maybe something like that on and off, I'm guessing. Um, uh, Scott Alexander. And uh, the, the main topic of conversation as we get into this a little later on is that Scott has done a, uh, a noble and amazing thing, which is uh, to publish a book, which will be out shortly, on the life and the magic of the late, great Denny Haney. So we're all excited about that. Thank you for joining me, uh, Scott. It's a pleasure, really. It's great. You're welcome. He's, he's not dead. He's just late. He's supposed to be here 10 minutes ago. Exactly right. <laughs> and, and he's not that great anymore either. So, right. Uh, just to let everybody who's watching this... Uh... <laughs> Thank you. Wow, you did come prepared. <laughs> Holy cow. You know, it's that kind of thing. It is that kind of thing. Um, for those of you watching this on video, um, that uh, background behind Scott is uh, the old uh, uh, Denny and Lee Magic Studio uh, from Baltimore. Uh, it was a great, great magic shop. Um, let's talk about that for a minute, and then we'll get into other stuff. Are, are, have you taken over that store? I, I mean, you're in you're in Pennsylvania, are you not? I am in Pennsylvania. I'm, uh, I live with the Amish people up near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, where everything's magic, electricity, carpeting. Hey, um, but uh, yeah, um, I, uh, I didn't really take over the store, but I, I have all the stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, there was a guy who worked for Denny who was started a, to run a little store with, with the family's blessing up, up in uh, York, Pennsylvania, but I think he underestimated the uh, the uh, uh, breadth of running a magic shop and yeah. didn't really fly um he got uh, swamped with other commitments so anyway all the stuff is here and um i have plans for it down the road uh which we can talk about later but um yeah um it's um it's uh it's a lot of stuff we accumulate a lot of magic over the years and denny just had an enormous collection of of great magic um and um it's uh you know, it's a, it's all looked like that before, but now it's all kind of in boxes, sitting uh, in various storage units and garages and things like that. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was trying to make uh, Al uh, Al Flasso look like he was organized. So it was... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's really funny. Denny, when you know, delving into his life and stuff, early in his career, all the way through, I'd say he did a lot of you know colleges and then he did corporates he was the king of the corporates in the 80s and 90s and then he opened a magic shop and for the first two or three years he was organized everything had a label everything had a place everything was neat organized tidy you could put your finger on it and then slowly over the years of having a magic shop it just deteriorated into what i said in the book looked like 
uh, a Dunder Mifflin paper truck collided with Murphy's Magic Warehouse. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, it just deteriorated from this organized, crisp guy just to this old, crusty wizard, you know. So wow. I, I don't know how that happened, but it did. I think uh, dealing with magicians probably will do that to you. That might that might be the cause. Yeah. So uh, give me a little background. Were you born in Pennsylvania? No, I was actually born in Baltimore, oh. uh, directly across the street from where Denny would eventually open his first magic shop. Wow. Yeah, yeah, on Marlin Avenue in Essex, Maryland. Uh, the Marlin Gardens apartments were literally, you could throw a rock from the front of Denny's Place and hit where I was born. Uh, it was really, really just serendipitous. And when I was a kid, my parents actually looked in the phone book to try to find a magician for my 10th birthday party, and Denny was the only game in town, but he was busy. Uh, so as it turns out, I never met him, but I got a, you know, he couldn't make it, but two weeks later, I got a picture in the mail, a signed autograph photo of this guy with a sword and a lady floating. I said, sorry, I couldn't be there for your birthday, Scott, but, uh, have a happy one and believe in magic or something. And I kept it on my wall for years. And then later on, when I was 14, uh, Raymond, the magician was, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, society of American magicians, uh, one, two, three, he was president of that chapter at the time. He was buddies with Denny, and he actually introduced me to Denny backstage at a show that we were doing for the club, an annual Halloween show. And I saw this guy with curly hair, red hair, and a piano key scarf and a white jacket. And I'm looking at him going, I know that guy from somewhere before Raymond introduced us. And then finally it clicked. That's the guy I had hanging on my wall. Wow. So, yeah, that's how, we, that's how I actually first met Denny. Wow. Very cool. So magic, uh, what, when did magic bug uh, bite for you? Magic bug first bit me when the first magic I remember seeing was Lucille Ball. I it was, I must've been four or five years old. She had this walking stick in her hand. She was wearing a black leotard that looked like a tuxedo up top. And she went, Poop, and that stick changed into a handkerchief. And that started a brain worm i could not what is that what and my mom was like, oh that's uh, magic so grandma and ma took me down to uh the magic shop that was at the east point mall in essex uh a place where denny was most likely working at that time so oh. i may have bought my first magic set from denny i don't know but it was around 1975 1976 and he was right in that area at the time i'll be darned holy yeah. smoke yeah um and then, well, you've, you've moved around. I mean, you uh, did you do the college thing? I did. Um, when I, I went to college at McDaniel College, which is in Maryland, it used to be called Western Maryland, but then somebody with a bunch of money named McDaniel gave it to him. Uh, so now it's called McDaniel College. <laughs> and uh, it's a small liberal arts school, and uh, I majored in theater, uh, and I uh, got a BA in theater. And um, basically, the... Um, the theater, the theater degree, after I, I got out of college, I ended up, uh, my wife, Jenny, who we, we met in college, we met doing a, doing a play together because, you know, we had to do the acting stuff. We, right. we did Into the Woods and she was uh, Cinderella and I was the prince. Aw. Uh -huh. and, <laughs> and the rest is history. But uh, yeah, so we started doing colleges right after that. We found a small college agent. And uh, and they started sending us out. And and I ended up uh, down in Florida performing a show at FAU. And there was one of the students was a magician. And he said, hey, did you ever go see uh, Bill Malone's place over in Boca? So I was like, no. So my wife and I are in this van and we drive over to Boca Raton and we pull up to this big resort. 
you know, it's like huge, massive pink thing, uh, ritzy, ritzy, titsy. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I pull up to the guard gate and I'm like, hey, I'm here to see Bill Malone. And they're like, do you have an appointment? And I'm like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so they let me in. And I, and I wandered in, into Bill's bar and met him. And uh, we, we str- hit it off and I showed him a couple tricks. And he said, hey, if you ever want to move down here, I'll give you a job. So I was like, sure, screw it. Let's go. So I ended up working for Bill Malone for about a year, doing a close-up at his bar. And then um, that led to a, a gig out in Vegas, a corporate gig. Flew out to Vegas, uh, wandered around the Strip because I'd never been to Vegas, and wandered into Caesar's Magical Empire through the gift shop back door, same way I got into Malone's. <laughs> and, uh, and I ran into Jeff McBride's manager and said, this place is awesome. How do I get to work here? And Tobias gave me the name of the people who book it. I sent them some videotapes, and uh, a couple weeks later, they just happened to be looking for somebody who could do close-up and stage, because they needed somebody to fill in for Micah Marr and Daryl one night, and Pendragons the other night. So I sent them a tape that had, you know, parlor stuff and uh, illusions. It arrived on their desk the right day. They called me. They said, can you be here in two weeks? And then I, what, what was supposed to be a one-month gig turned into seven years. Yeah. Years. And that's because uh, I saw you out there, so that must have been the late nineties, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was ninety. So we first moved out there in ninety seven. Yeah, and uh, then Caesars wrapped up in ninety uh, two thousand four. No, yeah, something like that. And then we stayed there an extra couple of years, uh, and then moved back east after we were did the Vegas thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think you've done. You know, I, if there's a lesson to be learned from uh, from Denny's book, and and from your own career as well it's it's being a general practitioner is is really the vital thing i mean you know to be able to cover a lot of different uh areas you know can you do a kid show sure i can do a kid show can you do strolling sure i can do strolling hey we got a big thing yeah yep that's how i ended up getting in the door and it's true and denny denny professed that he said you know, uh, if if you you can learn things about close up magic that will inform you about something you do on stage. Basically, Shin Lim is doing a black art act, right? Right. You know, <laughs> so oh yeah, well, it's, you know, it's it's cross we cross uh, discipline, and uh, you you learn more, and and your magic is better because of that. Um, well, it, this is off off topic, but you know, I, I one of the big influences of of FISM has been the uh, development of what is now a stage act done at a table and that's close-up magic now. So, you know, the guy walks out, never makes any kind of verbal contact with the audience. The music starts, he does his manipulations and his stuff and the music stops and off he goes. So, and you know, in many cases, if the guy can't make the gig, the table can. So it all, (laughs) right. It all worked. The seeds of that were early on. I mean, that, that genre, if you look at Goshman's uh, cards under the newspaper, he did that to music. Yeah. It was all that kind of format. And Gary Ouellette p- played with that kind of stuff. And now it is the standard. That is what is done, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it was uh, for Albert, um, that music was, was vital to his success in that act because uh, there was a time, uh, this was, you know, years and years and years ago. Uh, Her- there was somebody had a magic convention in a city called Logansport, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And Harry Reiser and I were invited to perform at it. And it was like a two-day thing over the weekend. And Goshman got hired for it. And uh, on one of the shows that he did, his little tape recorder didn't work. Oh. 
And boy, his act really crashed and burned just because that one little piece of the puzzle wasn't functioning properly. Wow. It threw everything, it threw him off completely. So it was real strange, but yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is, but I, I do see that, uh, you know, you've made uh, a, a very good uh, success at being able to uh, be a jack of all trades. I think. And, and not saying you're not a, ma not a master of many right, of them, right, yeah. but you know, you you certainly have to be able to do all those things. It's it's like when I used to teach uh, music theory in college, I used to say to the kids, if you want to actually make a living in this industry, you have to be able to do a lot of things. You got to be able to play a dance job, but you know what those existed back then. Right. Um, you've got to be able to sight read, to be able to want to do studio, or you know all kinds of things. And it works in the field of magic. Yeah, well, as that well. Was Johnny Thompson's uh, thing, right? General practitioner. General exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and you certainly are correct that um, that the uh, skill set and the, the the way of looking at magic that you develop as a close up magician can certainly inform uh, parlor magic and stage magic because it, it you just understand that you can't just rely on the prop to make this thing look like yeah. magic and there's other things uh, you know going on as well. Yeah, if you take a look at, I mean, a lot of magicians primarily have never done big stage illusions big either because they don't interest them or they're too expensive or they're not whatever but if you if you look at what it takes to create a piece of magic on stage i mean you're physically moving your body the assistant's body you've got to deal with the lighting you've got to deal with the prop placement the angles all that stuff is the same thing you're doing when you're doing card under the drink, right? Right. It's choreographic stage. It's if the props are smaller, but those same techniques you can apply to that particular effect. Yeah, yeah very true. Very true. And I've also thought that the big challenge for uh, for illusionists is somehow being able to transcend that prop. Yeah, you um, be bigger than the box. You got to be bigger than the box because uh, and. and 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 figuring out uh, that emotional connection that will allow the audience to dismiss what is the well, I, w I was going to say the elephant in the room, but it's the elephant in the box. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah. you know, and and to you know, and I, I think that's one of the things that Copperfield did extraordinarily well. The way he sort of changed things up when everything was a little playlet, it yeah. was uh, you know, and had meaning within the context of the, the little story he was weaving. And I guess I suppose that goes all the way back to uh, Masculine and the uh, Egyptian Hall. Is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah, yeah Egyptian Hall. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. And Cop but Copperfield did one thing. He made it, he Copperfield made it contemporary and relatable by using music that had lyrics. No one had ever used music with lyrics up until Copperfield decided uh, to do it. Right. So he let the, the lyrics of the musical artist carry a lot of that story when when he played uh weekend in uh new england and the dakota chair that sadness of the song and the lyrics and the vanish of the girl from the table staged in an attic with the picture it it really copperfield just you know made that a complete and truly artistic theatrical experience and that's what i remember growing up on yeah i, I was at the tail end of henning but copperfield was was my guy my main guy yeah and uh, and and finding a way to f get that emotional hook, which is the thing that all of us struggle to do, to to be more than a puzzle. And uh, music is certainly a, a big factor of that. Since my training is as a musician, I was always impressed with uh, his choice of music for the things that he used. I always thought he found the perfect perfect cue for that. 
So how did you uh, how did you end up uh, hanging around a lot with Denny Haney? Well, I was uh, I was working in Wheaton while I was going to school, uh, and so it was about uh, Wheaton, Maryland was about a hour drive from where my school was. So on the weekends, I'd work at Barry's Magic Shop. Oh, sure. In Georgia Avenue on Wheaton. And uh, I met uh, Master Alan Nu there. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was doing a, a Chinese act at the time. Birds, fish, ducks, animals nobody likes. And um, basically, uh, it's just getting into mentalism. And um, so we, we hit it off, struck up a friendship. He had a studio back behind uh, Barry's where we would uh, hang out. And um, Alan was getting ready to kind of ditch the Chinese act and move off towards the mentalism realm. And and Alan was, uh, Alan was Denny's primary assistant from 1984 to, you know, the uh, the early 90s. And um, so he kind of said, hey, I've got, I got this guy, Denny Haney. I was like, oh, I know who he is. Um, and he had, Denny had just opened his magic shop. It was, yeah, it was probably 1992, three, somewhere in there. And um, so I took over for Alan uh, as Denny's uh, onstage assistant, right? Oh. Moving props, schlepping stuff, uh, carrying the sword basket, putting the girl on the swords with him. Uh, and then, uh, so I took over for, for Al. And then I did it for a year. Uh, and then I took off for Malone's and uh, I met Puck at Barry's Magic Shop. And Puck took over for me in that role in Denny's show. Oh, wow. And he retired. Yeah. So that's kind of where that nexus was. Uh, with the three of us. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I should explain that um, for a few years, at least at least three, because you did three, I think you did three different columns for me when I was editing MUM. You did uh, one, uh, like a road warrior kind of uh, yep. thing. Uh, another one that was called 10 Questions, I think. You did some yep. short interviews with people. Yep. And, and then uh, I asked you to do a cover story on Denny. Which and this is back in 2012. I sort of did my homework. I think it was the August issue of MUM. I remember the conversation like it was yesterday, Scott. A lot of Denny's material really needs to be chronicled. He's not going to be around a whole lot longer, so someone needs to do it. And I think you're the guy. Well, yeah, I mean, after you know, we went through a lot of back and forth and conversation in preparing for that cover story, yeah, yeah. which, uh, uh, you know, I. I rarely got any feedback from anyone during the nine years that I edited that magazine. Are you talking about apathy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the name of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> um, but the cover uh, of that particular issue did get a lot. Uh, I think the problem was uh, it, it was there was a coincidental factor there. Of course, with the United States, it's not that hard to get that coincidence to work. But there had been, I think, a shooting, uh, you know, a, maybe a school shooting. I don't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the cover we had perfectly reflected the tone of the article, which mm -hmm. was Denny Haney, defender of the old school. Yeah. And so we we had Denny with a with a helmet on and a fake M16 and, <laughs> and a bunch of classic magic text piled up on the counter there. And he's, you know, grouchy behind it was the perfect cover. Yeah. Which of course, if you if you didn't read the article, which is pretty much a given um, <laughs> for my demographic, then all you saw was at a time that coincided with a shooting in the United States, 
we have a guy with a gun and a helmet in a magic shop uh, right. standing there. But right. um, but it was in in developing that, you know, it's one of my pet, uh, not my pet peeves, but one of the things that I think is so important is I think that especially somebody like Denny, who has done such a service to magic in the things that he's uh, developed, um, for that material to be in the hands of just a few people and to rely on them by word of mouth or osmosis to keep that alive, does that person a real disservice? Yeah. And uh, certainly we both know that, that Denny was his own worst enemy in terms of taking care of his health. I mean, it's um, you could do a prediction, uh, guessing how many photos in the book have him holding a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. I didn't know you could do that and do card fans. I mean, that was that was a big surprise for me. That was misdirection back in the day. <laughs> yeah, it sure I'm was. Out of card, and that's asked Frank Thompson. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. Um, so anyway, I I approached you and I said maybe and, and Denny and I said it would be a great year's worth of columns to you know just take twelve core items uh, from his repertoire and to use them. Uh, and to make a column out of it so that if, uh, you know, if, if the worst happens, uh, you know, and, and the end comes quickly, at least those 12 columns establish a body of work and it's in print. It can be found by people who are interested. And he was reticent to do it because like, I didn't really invent anything. Right. But he improved things. But the more we dug into it, right, that's that's kind of your thing. And that's your subtlety. And you, you don't realize that you put all this into it. Yeah, exactly. And, and what it does is, uh, you know, as we have seen, because you and I have certainly watched tons and tons of magic in our lives and magic conventions, that without somebody to solve some of the inherent problems that exist in tricks, there's always that little out of tune note. You know, you just never got around to fixing that. And so, you, flaw, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, uh, and I assume that in your, in your, uh, because you did work with Denny on the book while he was still around. You had okay. discussions and uh, he must have been pointing you. I mean, there were a lot of stories about him. Uh, I'll talk about the structure of the book in a minute, but, um, you know, a, and access to photos and things like that, which you must have been working on ahead of time with, with this end result in yeah, mind. And he, and he had been working on a book by putting away photos and envelopes with labels that he had in the back that I found when he was organized because he was working on a book. And so he gave me those photos and he gave me the notes that he had on different things. And then I sat and interviewed him for hours and hours and hours and hours on tape and on audio. So we were working on that book up until the day he died, pretty much. We were working on it. Uh, I wasn't working on it as studiously as I, you know, could have, but, you know, a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, and then finally time caught up, and I promised him before he went, I said, I'm going to finish this damn thing for you, and uh, he was really happy about that, so. So, let's, let's, I'll t talk a little bit about the way the book breaks down. Um, let me just do an, an overarching thing that I think is really great about the book, and then we'll talk about the biography part and we'll talk about the trick part. Um, the, the thing that is really, really good about this book that, I, that I'm particularly happy about is that Denny Haney is in this book. So many times when somebody writes a book about somebody else's material, the subject of the book doesn't appear in the book. 
In other words, uh, my prime example of this is, uh, is the Don Allen book, because Don Allen really had no interest in seeing that book published. So, you know, John Rockerbobber had to do the best that he could do with the information that he had. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of that information was just things that he could glean off of the Stevens videotape and things like that. So the voice that's missing in that book is Don's voice. This is not the case in the Denny Haney book, because you know, you've got all these great quotes and, uh, you know, things that he comments that he has about the material that's going on. And the other thing that you did that I think is really great is that you did not sanitize those comments for a G-rated audience or even a PG-rated audience. Yeah. Because Denny was blunt. Denny was, you know, the way he spoke about things is the way he spoke about things. And to describe it in any other way would have done him a disservice, I think. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because I really didn't write want to write Scott Alexander's book about Denny. I wanted to write Denny's book about Denny. Yeah. And that's and that's an important point. And that's an important point. Um the one thing about Denny that those who didn't know him uh were might have been surprised at was was just how stubborn a human being this guy was. Uh even when the decision he was going to make was going to put his life at risk. If somebody said, no, you can't do that, he was going to do that. I mean, you know, three, was it three or four tours in Vietnam? Three, yeah, yeah. You know, and he, he was, a, he's a little older, uh, about five years, five or six years older than I am. Um, but going to Vietnam was not high on my list back in, uh, you know, 1967, you know, or something. I was still in high school at the time, so that wasn't a factor. But after I got out, the draft was still going on for a couple more years. You um, hadn't moved to Canada yet. <laughs> no, no, I didn't even think about that option. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, but, uh, but by on the one token, one hand, you know, it was a, an incredibly risky thing to have done. But on the other hand, with the contacts, what he made while he was there, if he hadn't gone to Vietnam, he would have been a very different Denny Haney. I think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That decision, uh, he had the, he had three times he could have gotten out of, uh, I called it a get out of Nam pre-card in the book, uh, different occasions that he could have said, he could have just had an easy out. Nope, not going. Uh, but he made the choice to actually go. So, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, It's crazy. Um, and, and of course the people he met there, I mean, probably the most important was, uh, Johnny Aladdin. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, who was, you know, I met Johnny in, uh, in Vegas, but he was pretty much a pussycat by the time I met him. I, I don't feel he was a pussycat back in the fifties and sixties when he was no, actually he, out doing it. He had settled into old age and was, uh, was living off the, uh, the fruits of his, uh, labor. <laughs> But um, and then, of course, with his language skills, uh, uh, so much of, of uh, uh, Denny's work then was in uh, Vietnam and Manila mm -hmm. and, and, and doing the Asian market for for a very long time. Yep. Thailand and all over oh, Saigon, all over Southeast Asia. Um, he worked not only as a magician on occasion, but also as a booking agent. And the experience he gained uh, he, as a booking agent allowed him, you know, after he went through a big, terrible time in, in Hawaii, 
Uh, he actually was able to come out the other side and use his knowledge that he learned from Johnny Aladdin to get himself back on his feet when he ended up back in Baltimore. Ah, uh, yeah. And then he was, uh, he, you know, uh, certainly was a giant in the um, corporate market. And I guess those, those skills of how to, how to book yourself. Plus he had, he had the gear, he had the equipment and the, and the, and the kind of dazzle, I guess, that, that, that kind of market needed at that, those yeah. times. And it, and it was interesting too, because at the time, this was when he first started doing colleges and corporates and just getting into that, that really getting steam once getting back to Baltimore at that time, it was the mid seventies and Doug Henning was just coming on TV at that time. And just by coincidence, Denny's choice of material matched up with the material Doug Henning used in his early career in the magic show, the sword suspension, the canvas covered trunk, the crystal box. It was and agents were going, wait, this Doug Henning's blowing up. Do we have anybody who does this kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. Denny Haney does that. Let's get him on that song, bitch on the horn. And uh, and that he got all the gigs because he was the only guy doing that stuff at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. And then I guess uh, we could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the core tricks. I mean, you just named four of them and all of those are discussed uh, in the book, but also the egg bag oh, yeah. and um, a trick that for some reason uh, never occurs to me is as strong a trick as it could po- it could be. But the Zen's cards across, from, you know, from envelope to envelope yeah. you know you with that murdered with that <laughs> yeah well it's funny because uh i was just talking to doc dixon uh yesterday and i mentioned to him that you and i were going to be talking about denny and he said yeah you know that's a huge hunk of my stand-up act is this this crazy trick with cards and envelopes you know but it's it it's amazing you know i mean i've done it as a close-up trick and i have a, a routine i like very much as a uh, you know, a parlor trick or what happened. I can do it that way. But um, to get guys on stage with envelopes, counting cards and putting them in envelopes, it, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. astonishing. But all the work is there. I mean, it's all it's all yeah. in the book. For and Denny who- got, I have a video of Denny doing it, which are the screenshots are from the video of Denny doing it in 81. Uh, and um, it's 14 minutes long. And the audience is laughing their butts off the whole time. The, every beat has a joke. The misdirection is covered. He basically, on Howie Schwartzman's recommendation, he deconstructed Zen's Cards Across from J.G. Thompson's book. Right. He got rid of all the fluff and made it streamlined. And you still end up with a whole deck you can give away at the end. It was genius. And not only that, but he made it really entertaining. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a big hunk of the show when he had to do a, a long 90-minute a show. Yeah. And certainly one of those great things, that if, if you're the assistant in the show, is easy to pack up. Easy to pack up. And I, I remember Denny was, there's a story in the book where during the cards across, uh, Alan knew in the back would always take a nap on the sub trunk during the cards across because it was 14 minutes long and that was his break for the day. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. It's like an alarm clock when they count them. One, right, one two. two. Oh, oh, oh I'm trying to, trying <laughs> start to, the music. Oh, crap. I've got to, I've got to be back on duty. Oh, yep, that's yep. funny. Yep. Uh, what am I leaving out? Uh, some of the other uh, things that are... Multiplying bottles. Oh, multiplying bottles, right. Uh, the razor blades, the sidewalk shuffle. Uh, gosh, the, um, what are the Tornado Sword newspaper? Denny's touches on that that didn't make it into the Anderson book. 
Um, his touches on Grave Mistake by the Dick Stoner thing, yep. uh, which is hilarious. Uh, and then is, there's the sp- uh, specialties like billiard ball manipulation, the Lloyd Candles. There's no work written anywhere on the Lloyd Candles. Um, there's uh, the Denny's Bullet Catch. Oh, my God. Oh, that was amazing. I, I didn't know that he did the bullet catch. Yeah, and... He did it more than anybody up until Penn and Teller started doing it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, there's some... There's, I, I learned some things from that. I, cool. Can you hear the noise upstairs? Can you hear the dog? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Might be great. Tommy Cooper. Get back, get back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sidewalk shuffle. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a great silk roll he learned from Gustafson in here. And then there's close-up stuff, too. Yeah. Um, his card stuff with the with the uh, adding them up, the, the number. The blood trick from Nightingale that Danny used to do is in here. Uh, yeah, the bullet catch. And not only that, but his essays on how to get a standing ovation, oh, it's, having a working library, tons of stuff in here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. It's really great. There's video also included on a, on a DVD with the, with the book. Is that right? Or, uh... <laughs> yeah, inside, inside the book is actually, I put a, uh, a QR code, which is inside a, a plate in the book. And you can go to a video link, and there's a half-hour video which are highlights. And then if you're really into the video thing, I made a four four disc. There's like four discs in here of everything from Denny's career that is sort of a companion to the book. You can get too. Wow! So, I mean, hours Terrific. and hours. Him doing a trade show as a guy named Doctor Freeze, right? Doing a trade show pitch <laughs> for cryogenic freezing, uh, and he's doing the linking rings and the uh, the cube zag. He calls a refrigerator. You know. It's amazing stuff. Uh, wow. Him doing big theater shows and all just stuff. You've him doing the barricaded barrels and uh, God, uh, the beam box and the blade George uh, Goebbels blade box. Tons and tons of cool stuff. So wow. if you're really, really deep into the woods. Uh, that's cool too. Terrific. Uh, so when will the uh, the book is available for ordering? When will the book be uh, uh, on its way back from uh, uh, wherever it's being printed? This very morning, I got an email saying January 15th, it will be done to pick up. Wonderful. So I'm psyched. Perfect. <laughs> I wanted to have it out by Christmas or at least his birthday, which was the 26th. Uh, uh, but uh, it just uh, the binding of it, just the binders got backed up, as is usual. When you're bound up, you're bound up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, January, January 15th, right in that neighborhood, they'll, be, they'll start going out. Wonderful. Uh, really nice to talk to you, Scott. Thanks for... Uh, spending the morning with me. I sure appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Big hugs to your family and, and stay safe, pal. I'll Same be talking to you. To you. Yours. Take Bye now. Bye. This has been another conversation with Close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your friends. Like us on Facebook at Michael Close Magic. Follow us on Twitter at Mike Close Magic. And visit our website, which is michaelclose.com. If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash michaelclose. And that way we can continue to bring you high quality content. So until next time, so long from the Great White North.